Well, let me add my welcome this morning. Thank you for being here on a fine Sunday morning. I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3 as our kids are making their way out this morning. We're grateful for our children's ministry and all of our volunteers who lead in that area of our church. Uh, me and them just got back from camp a few weeks ago and a lot of exciting things happening in the life of our student ministry and our children's ministry, uh, looking to baptize four uh, students and kids in the next two Sundays. And so I want to encourage you to be back the next two Sundays to see some of that. It's good stuff. A couple of you are excited about that. We appreciate your enthusiasm this morning. Uh, if you need to wake up, there's coffee. I think still outside. You can go get you a cup and bring it back in. So, 2 Timothy chapter 3, continuing on in our, our study. And uh, we're talking this morning about self-nourishment. That's why I kind of mentioned the coffee thing. I learned how to get you a good cup of joe every single morning. I pretty much can't live without it. But we want to learn spiritually how to feed ourselves and how to grow into maturity. I, I don't know about your house, but at my house, every single spring, there's a certain kind of bird, and I don't know what kind of bird it is. I was looking it up yesterday. I just kind of Googled birds in Virginia, and I didn't know if it was a warbler or a wobbler, or however you say that name, or a, some other kind of bird, cat bird or something. But it builds a nest underneath my deck where my garage is. And this year there was two nests, two different sets of parents on the other either side of the, the the decking there, but they will take mud and they will take grass and they will mix them together and create a mess, but they will hatch a host of little chicks every single year. And so uh, every day when they, after those eggs hatch, you walk outside the garage underneath the deck and you feel like you're being stared down upon because you are. Little beaks kind of just peer over at, at you. It's a very eerie feeling. The last week I walked outside of the garage and expected once again to be looked down upon. And to my amazement, they were all gone. Apparently the mama and daddy did what mama and daddy were set out to do, setting out to do, and that is they raise little chicks to maturity. See, one of the primary goals of parents is the maturity of their children. Can I get an amen from all the parents in the house, right? You love your children. They're beautiful and wonderful, but you want those children to leave one day. I'm looking forward to the day with my three daughters. Amen. <laughs> Some excitement in here about that. I'm looking forward to the day, though I don't want to rush it. But I'm looking forward to the day that my three daughters take their hands out of my pocket and stick it into some other young guy's pockets, and some other dude pays the bills on them. We want to grow our kids and raise them to maturity. We want our kids to become fully developed physically. We want them to become fully developed emotionally, fully developed mentally, fully developed relationally, fully de developed. And for us as Christian parents, we want our children to grow in the full maturity the spiritual maturity of Christ. It's a beautiful journey with many stops along the way. Think about how your kids grew up, the things that they uh, learned to do, the stops along the way. I mean, babies start to crawl, and toddlers learn to walk and talk, and preschoolers learn the letters of the alphabet and how to count and how to color between the lines. Elementary kids become more independent as they learn to tie their shoes and pick out their own clothes, fix their own breakfast, and study on their own. Adolescents learn to drive and learn how to make more complex decisions. Young adults choose career paths. They get married and they start the whole process over again as they begin their own families. 
Through the entire process, there's an ongoing physical, emotional, mental, relational, and spiritual transformation taking place that's culminating in what we would call maturity. Maturity. In the beginning of this process, the child is unable to care for themselves, unable to provide for their needs. They cannot protect themselves. But along the way, the child begins to become more and more independent as he or she develops. Self-reliance morphs into self-nourishment. Dependence on parents turns into de- or dependence or reliance upon themselves. And in many ways, this is also true of Christian maturity. God's desire and God's plan for his children is not that they become reliant upon themselves, but they learn how to rely upon the Lord, to trust in him, to lean into them, how to nourish themselves in the Lord. Mature believers know how to identify. They know how to avoid the self-inflicting wounds that we talked about last week. And Likewise, they know how to nourish themselves in their walk with Jesus. And so this morning, in this passage that we have before us, in verses 10 through 17, we see here the Apostle Paul providing some insight on how a believer, how Timothy is a pastor, how Timothy is a Christian, how this church at Ephesus can and should nourish their lives, their spiritual walk with Jesus, and grow toward maturity in him. So look with me, verse 10, let's read through the end of the chapter. And I love this passage. It's Uh, It contains two of those verses that are probably really famous in your own life. Verses 16 and 17 really lays out the primacy of the Word of God, the fact that it's breathed out by God. And so let's look at what Paul has to say. Verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra which persecutions I endured, and yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Last Sunday, I mentioned that the Ephesian church, the Ephesian church here was drifting. What we see in the New Testament is we see a gradual drift drift in the discipleship of this early church. They started out strong. They were bold and courageous in their faith. Then we come to these pastoral epistles that Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's the pastor of this church, and we see some things that are beginning to change. We move to Revelation chapter 2, and through that Revelation to John, we see Jesus rebuking this church because they had left their first love. There is a gradual shift, a gradual drift in their walk with the Lord, in their discipleship. We today can look back with the privilege of hindsight because we can see this taking place. So we need to perk up and we need to see what's happening here. We need to look in our own lives and, and make the, distinguishing, the distinguishment to see if it's happening to us. What we see in this church is the cause of their drift, the cause of their shift were self-inflicted wounds. 
like self-centeredness, listening to those and allowing those to influence their life. They were listening to and, and buddying up with those who were nothing more than a simulated spiritual person. There was no genuine authenticity in their walk with Jesus. They were listening to and, and hanging around those who, who continued to reach out for God's Word, trying to find the truth, but never were able to come to the simple knowledge of faith in Jesus Christ through the gospel. So what we see here is that this church began to allow themselves to listen and be influenced by self-centered, simulated spiritual leaders who devalued the word of God. And the result was a damaged church, a church that was not moving toward maturity as God purposed. This is a common problem. Some people never grow up. They just grow old. Think about that. Some people never grow up. They just grow old. We are living in a, in a day and age where this is real life. There are adolescents today that are 35 years old, still living with mama in the basement. There's something wrong with that. We are supposed to grow up and leave and cleave, the Bible would say. Amen? We need to grow up in all areas. We need to grow up in our walk with Jesus. I mean, this is a problem throughout humanity. We never grow up. Many a woman today is a teenage husband. Many a long-suffering husband as a child bride with wrinkles. They never grew up. Our Heavenly Father desires for us as His children to grow up. Going back to the opening illustration, God desires for us to get up and walk out of the nest in maturity. Walking by faith. Walking in strength in the Lord. Not being uh, 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 satisfied with immaturity. Paul here gives us some instructions of what we're to do, and how we're to nourish ourselves. And so let me give them to you this morning. First of all, we see Timothy being exhorted to follow the right example. Verses 10 and 11, and then verse 14, we see Paul exhorting him to follow the right example. He's already listed the bad examples. He says, avoid such people. Remember last week, avoid these people, these self-centered, simulated spiritual leaders. Avoid them like the plague. But Paul, look at the right example. Paul, look at me. Look at God's word. Look at the Lord Jesus. And so in stark contrast to the false teachers that he's mentioned, Paul here is giving Timothy this imperative there in verse 14, to continue in what you've learned, continue in what you've believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Follow the right example. This instruction for us is a reminder of the truth that he has come to believe and that he's come to know is true. It's also a reminder that Paul's own life is an example to emulate. Paul says, look at me. Shouldn't we all be able to say that in our own lives to those who are not as far along with Jesus as we are, that people could look at us and we could say to them, follow me as I follow Jesus. Follow me as I pursue Jesus. Follow me as I strive to be like Christ. You emulate, you model, you look at and find what you need in your life from me as I'm finding it in Christ. People need a standard of how they are to live their lives they also need a model of how to live out that standard. Jesus, as I said last Sunday, is the greatest example of that type of model. He both proclaimed the truth and he lived the truth. His teaching explained his life and his life exemplified his teaching. He told us how we should live and then he lived it out in his own life. And so in turn, Jesus expects us as his disciples to go and do likewise. Paul here in this, these verses cites nine features of this godly example that has been modeled before Timothy. He talks about his teaching, his conduct, his aim or purpose in life, his faith, his patience, his love, his steadfastness, his persecutions, and even his sufferings. 
mentions him not for his own enhancement. He doesn't do this to, to, to puff up his own ego. What he's doing here is he's seeking to encourage this young pastor, this young believer, this mentee in the faith. Paul's life had borne rich testimony to God's faithfulness. And here at the back end of his life, remember, Paul has been sentenced. He's awaiting execution. This is the last thing that he will do before he enters eternity. And he wants to make his life count. And so he reaches back and he writes to Timothy and he says, look at my life. Don't look at my life to make me some big thing. I'm only what I am because of Jesus. But learn from what Jesus was able to do in my life. Follow the right example, Timothy. Significant here that he mentions teaching first. If you read the pastoral epistles, this one, 1 Timothy as well as Titus, what you'll see there is, is that teaching is a primary or prominent theme throughout these letters. Timothy had been privileged to listen to Paul's expositions. He had heard him preach and teach many, many times on all sorts of subjects and themes. But teaching, listen to this, teaching needs to be linked with life. And for that reason, the next six virtue, virtues that he lays out bring out the practical character of the apostle's impact upon Timothy. He says, Timothy, you've seen me teach. You've heard me teach. But also, you've seen how I lived. And you know that my life, the way I've lived my life, by the grace of God, validates and backs up the teaching that God has instilled within me. There's a teaching and there's an example. So he mentions here his lifestyle. He mentions his conduct. He mentions his aim in life or his purpose in life. Unlike the false teachers, Paul's conduct confirmed his teaching. It was right there congruently side by side with his teaching. He walked his talk. I believe today in the church, today in, in our nation today, in evangelical Christianity in America, we need a whole lot less Talkie, talkie, we need a whole lot more walkie, walkie. What do you mean by that? This is what I mean. We've got a lot of nominal Christians. People would say, I- I'm a follower of Jesus, but if you look at their life, it's hard to actually see evidence of their walk with Jesus. In addition, Paul's consistent lifestyle was infused with his purpose. He was a single-minded, single-focused man, focused on the most important things, the gospel and the glory of Christ. I mean, what, would, what, what, what could possibly be the motivation that continued to, to stoke the fires in Paul's life so that when he's shipwrecked and abandoned and, and persecuted and stoned to death, left in the ditch, he would get up and go back into the city? Most people would quit at that point. What was it that continued to fuel his fire? It was because he was focused on the gospel, taking it to every people, every tongue, every tribe, every nation. He wanted to extend the kingdom of God. He was also focused on the glory of God. It consumed his life. This was his lifestyle. Alongside his lifestyle, Paul mentions his virtues. He speaks of his faith, his patience, his love, his steadfastness. Paul was a man who believed God despite his circumstances. He was a man who was patient Anybody need help with patience today? If you raise your hand, you know what will happen. God will get you. No, I'm just kidding. He won't get you. I think it's funny when people say that. Well, I was going to pray for patience, but I didn't want to have to learn. Uh, Patience is something we all need. Patience is part of the fruit of the Spirit in our life. If you're walking with Jesus, he's going to grow you in your patience. We all need to be patient came across a story this week in my studies. R. Kent Hughes, the great pastor, great theologian, shares a story of fishing with his grandchildren. One of them was a three-year-old boy named Joshua. He was an active little boy, as most little boys are. 
And so our Kent Hughes was constantly reminding this young boy how he needed to, to, to be patient. He needed to be quiet. He needed to sit still. He, he said, now, if you want to catch a fish, you have to sit there. You have to be patient. You've got to wait. And so every few minutes, Joshua would say, I'm being patient, huh, Grandpa? I'm being patient. I mean, he's just, it's like everything he could to hold it in to try to, to be patient. Running that bobber to go under the water. When strangers would walk by, Joshua would tell them, I'm being patient. It all came to end when his Uncle Will dropped by. And Joshua got up, he handed him his pole and said, Here, Uncle Will, you be patient, and walked off. <laughs> Paul was patient with people. Sometimes we need to learn to be patient with people. Paul also loved. He loved God. He loved people. He, he, he was consumed with the love of God. He was also steadfast in his hope of God. So that hope sustained him throughout all the persecutions, all the sufferings that he speaks of here. That's what sustained him. All the things that he experienced, that's what sustained him. The hope, the steadfastness found in the gospel. The apostle was a great and godly example for Timothy to emulate in his own discipleship and then to train others to do the same. He was a Christian, not just in word, he was a Christian in deed. The practice of his life was Christ-likeness, and we all need examples like that to follow in our own lives. Follow the right example. Think about this, everyone is influenced by someone. So who's influencing you? Who's the greatest influence in your life? I have a friend, I think I've shared with you before a long time ago, but I have a friend, his name's Chris. And uh, Chris and I were interns in our home church years ago, and, and uh, he's doing ministry still. And, and, and he's just got a real peculiar and intriguing way of talking. And, and I remember when we were hanging out as college kids and, and, and literally spending almost every day together, I, my words sounded like his words. I mean, he just, every time I'm around him, I, just, I leave talking like Chris. We were usually with them at the Southern Baptist Convention. We'll go to dinner or lunch every single time. And, and just an hour, two hours with him, I can already sense a change in the way I talk until I get away from him for a while. He, his way he speaks influences. And thankfully, many other things about his life has influenced me as well. Everyone is influenced by someone. Who's influencing you? Who is it that's your model for parenting in life? Who's your godly example when it comes to, to your prayer walk and your prayer life? Who's teaching you how to pray and, and seek the face of God? Who's your example when it comes to faith and believing God for big things? Who is it that's teaching you to be spiritually disciplined, walking with you and helping you to grow in those areas of your, of your Christian life? Who's your example when it comes to finances or just your simple behavior, how you live and talk and do what you do? You will and you are influenced by someone. So who is that person? And is that person the right example? Paul said, bad company corrupts good morals. The opposite is also true. Good company enhances good morals. Who is it that's shown you how to endure in, in difficult times? Uh, many times God will allow us and cause us to go through difficulties because there's somebody watching us, somebody that we're influencing that needs to learn that side of life. And so they see your faithfulness, they see your steadfastness, they see your continual hope in Christ, even when the foundation of your life seems to be crumbling out from underneath you. People who are watching you, people who are learning from you, God is using you as an example to build up their faith. So be a good example. Follow a good example. Secondly, embrace difficulty. 
Embrace it. Look what he says at verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you wanted to be encouraged this morning, there's your encouragement. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be serious about your faith, you better just roll the sleeves up because it's about to get dirty in here. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, it will seem like their life is easy, it will seem like their life is good, but their own deception continues to lead them down the wrong trail. What we tend to do at times is we look at how bad things are for us, we look to those who are not following Jesus, we think it's easier for them, but what Paul's saying here is they're actually deceiving themselves and they're going from bad to worse even though it may not look that way. But expect difficulty. Christian, embrace it in your life. Paul here is reminding Timothy that everyone, anyone who's going to seek to live a godly life will be persecuted. And in verse, 12, or verse 11, he gives three examples. He says, as it happened to me at Antioch, as it happened at Iconium, as it happened at Lystra, it's going to happen to you. Difficulty is inevitable in the Christian life. Jesus said in John 15, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Right? It's inevitable. So you can either get upset about it, you can either either get depressed about it, or you can embrace it as God's sandpaper in your life, molding you and conform you into the image of Jesus, and also at the same time being an example for others who are coming behind you. You're going to pass through many troubles as you live out this life in the gospel, so you should expect some degree of persecution. It's going to look different in different places. Today, if we were a church in the Middle East, if we were a church in a closed communistic country, if we were a church in many places in the world, the persecution, the sufferings we should express or expect and embrace is imprisonment and or in martyrdom, right? Today, it's not, or in America, it's not that way. You're not going to be imprisoned yet in America. You're not going to be martyred for being a Christian yet in America. And I say yet because I believe there will be a day when that happens. But in America, it's going to look like this. You may be ignored. You may be mocked. You might be passed over for a job promotion or, or something like that. But just take it to the bank. You will suffer. You will be persecuted as a follower of Jesus. So regardless of the form of difficulty you face, it's neither going to be easy nor enjoyable. And yet, inevitable, it's going to be a blessing to your life. So don't be surprised by it. What should surprise you is not experiencing difficulty. Do you hear what I just said? What should surprise you as a Christian is when you don't experience what God says right here in his word. That if you're following Jesus with a hot heart, you should embrace the difficulty because it's going to be there. You say, wow, I don't really think I have any of that in my life. It could be that you're not going in the same direction as the Lord. Right? It could mean that you're not really as hot-hearted for the Lord Jesus as you think you are. And so, Christian, I want to encourage you to, to examine your life. I want to encourage you to examine your, your heart and embrace the difficulty that comes. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said it this way in James 1, 2 through 4. Can in all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God's using the difficulties to develop your character, and he's using you as an example to help others who are coming behind. So follow the right example. Embrace difficulty. There's a third thing we see in the text here, and that is be strengthened in God's word. If you want to 
You want to learn how to nourish yourself spiritually. You know, obviously when I'm saying that, you're not nourishing yourself. You just learn the, the, the right place and the right techniques to connect yourself to the power source, right? Um, we came home last night, and there were two fawns in the front yard of our house. They saw them again this morning. They just live at our house. And, you know, 3838 Mapuche Trail, you go there, you're going to see these two fawns and, and mama. And uh, so they know where the food source for them is, right? It's the grass in our yard, but they don't eat much of it because I still have to mow. Sorry, dogs. I mean, I wish they'd just get out there and mow it down. I didn't have to do all that for four hours on a weekend. But they know where this, the nourishment source is, right? It's mama. And I haven't yet got to see them uh, suck, suck, suck the, the, the milk there, find the milk there, but it's a beautiful thing to behold. We as Christians want to learn how to connect ourselves to the nourishment of the Lord. So third thing here, be strengthened in God's word. Verses 14 again, he says, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he talks about the Word of God. All scriptures read out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why, Paul, why do we have the Word of God? He says that the man of God, that the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Be strengthened in God's word. What had Timothy learned? I mean, he tells him in verse 14 to continue in what he's learned and believed. What was it that he had learned and believed? It was the word of God. That's what we saw as we read through those verses. Timothy's journey toward belief and faith, as Paul lays it out here, began in his childhood. As Eunice and Lois, his mama and his grandma, Hebrew women, believers in the Old Testament, began to pour into his life. By best estimation, what we know of, of Timothy's father was that he was a Greek, therefore most likely not a follower of Yahweh, not a believer in the Old Testament. But his mama and his grandma were, they instilled the word of God, those sacred writings that Paul speaks of. And God used that through his Holy Spirit to open his heart to the gospel so that I believe that when Paul came preaching there, his heart was awaking to new life because of the deposit in his heart. It resulted in Timothy putting his faith in Jesus when the gospel was preached. Parents, listen to me this morning. It's eternally imperative that you deposit God's word into your children's hearts. It is eternally imperative. You say, I don't know if I want to do that. I want them to make their own decisions. I don't want to push them into the faith. I don't want to nudge them into something that they don't want to do. Who's the parent and who's the child? Amen? It's eternally imperative that you as a Christian parent lead your children to faith in Jesus. How do you do that? It begins by you pouring the word of God into their hearts, reading it to them, studying it with them, putting, make sure they're, they're in church week in and week out so that they can be saturated with the gospel. You say, I don't think that's my responsibility. It's absolutely your responsibility. If you don't believe that, take your Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and God tells the people of God, this is what you're to do. You're to take the word of God. It's to saturate your entire life, and you're to teach your children this. Do it. Read the word of God to your children. Don't leave it up to others. It's not my responsibility. I'm here as a tool. Our staff is a tool. Our small group leaders are a tool. God uses all of us, but it is the primary responsibility of parents to instill the word of God. Expose them to it. 
expose them to all of the Bible. Not just the parts you like, not just the parts that are easy, not just the parts that you're familiar with. All of the Bible is God's Word. I know I heard recently that um, I was talking, I might have been online, I don't know what the conversation, but the whole concept was just reading the Bible annually through the year, and I heard someone make the comment or read somebody make the comment that they get bogged down in the, in the genealogies, which I understand, they're kind of, they're genealogies, they're not that interesting unless you know the backstory there. But the reason they're there is so you know the backstory, right? So you know the history of what's going on. That's important. All of the Bible is the Bible. All of the Bible is God's Word. All of the Bible, as Paul says in verse 16, is breathed out by God. Theonoustos is the Greek term. Probably means nothing to you. Theo is God. Noustos is breath. Literally all Scripture is breathed into by God. It's the same thing that is happening now as I'm speaking. See, when you say a word, you are breathing that word into existence, right? Your breath is in connection with your mind, and somehow, some way, the two get connected. They, they form words that are understandable and meaningful. That's what the Word of God is. God, in His sovereign wisdom, breathes out His Word so that we know who He is, we know what He's done, and we know our great needs. It's the Word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, and we might even include maps in there. It is the inspired, and I'm joking about the maps, by the way, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And the goal of God's Word is to prepare a people to meet the Savior. And so are you nourishing yourself with God's Word? Are you feeding on it? Are you feasting on it? Are you regularly partaking of the Word? How many of you ate breakfast this morning? Show of hands. More people didn't eat than I thought. What's wrong with you people? Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Don't you know that? I know what happened. You got up at 8.40, had to be here at 9, and you just said, I'm not going to eat today. I'll eat afterwards. Right? I'm just kidding. <clears throat> Y'all look too pretty to be here with 20 minutes of preparation. How are you nourishing yourself? How, how do you do that? <clears throat> you do it daily. I, I dare say that none of us go a day without eating unless it's planned, Right? You do it daily. I mean, how can you expect to grow in your relationship with Jesus? How can you expect to be strengthened in your faith if you don't know what the Word of God says? You should not and you cannot expect that. I did some research this week. Lifeway Research conducted a survey that I came across. Uh, The survey was done in 2017. They polled 1,000 people all across uh, America. It was not necessarily geared toward any sort of denomination or or even uh, religious background. They just polled 1,000 different people wanting to know how many people in America read the Bible. Here are the results. The results reveal that about half, that is 53% of Americans, have read relatively little to none of the Bible. 53% of Americans. One in 10, that's 10%, had read none of it. 13% have read only a few sentences, and 30% say they've read several passages or stories. And so 30% of our population would say we're very familiar with the Word of God. Doesn't mean they necessarily read it daily. They've just read quite a bit over their years. I personally believe that the results of this study are very similar to the state of the typical American church. We're biblically illiterate in many ways. 
it's, it's, it's a tragedy for us. Why is that? It's because we've just not disciplined ourselves to read God's Word. <clears throat> I also believe it's because when you look at the average Christian, you see that they live primarily like the average person. And so I think the reading of God's Word, the study of God's Word, the application of God's Word is, is, is parallel to how a person lives their life. If you're going to live your life in God's Word, the Word of God is going to live itself out in you. And so I want to encourage you this morning to do a couple things as your pastor. I want to encourage you to have a systematic plan of reading, a systematic plan of application in your life. Read the Word of God. Have a plan to do so. I personally believe that every believer should read the Bible through each year. You've heard me say this many times. We did it last year as a church. Many of you partook in that. Many of you, for the first time, read the Bible through in its entirety. I hope you're doing it again this year. I've done it every single year for 17 years. Since 2002, I've read the Bible completely through every single year. And I don't say that to boast this morning. Like Paul here, I say that as an example for you to follow. Because I've told you before, and I'll say it again, the greatest contribution to my spiritual development, the thing that's helped me connect the dots in the Word of God more than anything else. It's not seminary. It's not preaching I've necessarily set under. It's not mentors that I've had. It's the simple, routine, day in, day out, systematic reading of Scripture year after year after year. Because you know what begins to happen? All those laws that you get bogged down in in January or February when you start in Leviticus, you get the Hebrews like, wow, that starts to make sense. I've been reading this for decades, and it starts to make sense. All those genealogies, like, I've, I've heard that name before. You begin to connect the dots, and the history comes in. You see how salvation history is playing itself out. It's just doing it over and over systematically in your life. You say, oh, Pastor, I don't think I can do that. I'm not a reader. I don't really have enough time. You know how much time it takes every single day to read the Bible through in a year? Even for a slow reader, 10 to 15 minutes. Anybody got 10 or 15 minutes during the day? How many of y'all, I know papers, newspapers are like obsolete, but how many of y'all read the newspaper? Wow, more than I expected, actually. Um, how many of you are on social media and you spend more than an hour on social media every day? This is a survey Sunday. <laughs> Apparently, I'm asking all these questions. I want to know who you are. I like how some of you answered that question. You're like, I... You're like embarrassed that you spend so much. I know you spend time on social media because I'm on it as well. And I see you on Facebook. You're green. So if you're not raising your hand, I know you're lying, right? I'm on there too. Steve's on there. You say, I don't have enough time. I don't think I can do that. You've got enough time to do what you want to do, right? You've got enough time to do what you want to do. You waste time on social media. You waste time watching TV. Some of you are religiously watching the news every single day, whether it's local or or national. I'm one of those people. You will do what you want to do. You will make time for what's important to you. You will spend money on what's important to you. And so I want to encourage you to begin today reading the Bible every single day. Why should you read it consistently? Our experiences and the people we interact with each day Think about this, influence us. Everything in our life influences us. I'm pulling a lot of this from an article I read this week. I reposted it on Facebook. It's an article arguing for the fact that Christians should read through the Bible every single year. Think about this. Simply by living in our world, we accumulate a lot of the worldly stuff. 
The, the disparaging conversations that we're privy to, the, the, the tempting images that we see, self-centered ideas that we come across, arguments that we may engage in or observe, frustrations that we experience, hurt feelings, kids that won't stay in bed. Anybody got that issue? Uh, I mean, all of these things. Road rage if you're driving on the interstate at 5 p.m. on a Friday evening here in Richmond. All of those things snatch at our attention. They do something like we uh, might experience in our own vascular system. They begin to clog the things of God out, right? You get clogged arteries. they got to go in and get scoped or get a stent. What they're doing, or they put you on some sort of medication to try to open up your your arteries so that blood can flow through there. That's what the Word of God in, in a similar way does. When you're routinely reading it, systematically ingesting it, what it does is it helps wash out all of that junk, gives us a big, big picture of the glory of God, the, the beauty of God, helps us understand the gospel and how it impacts our life. It exposes us to the things of God, washes away the things of the world, anchors us in ultimate rally, ra- reality, and ultimately decalcifies all the junk that's clogging us up. Read the Word of God. Paul says here it's going to teach you, it's going to rebuke you, it's going to train you, it's going to equip you for every good work that God has for you to do. You can't live a solid, growing, vibrant, Christ-glorifying Christian life without a systematic plan to read the Word of God. Those crazy birds that build nests under my deck every single year have one goal, maybe two goals. Number one, we want to mess this dude's driveway up with the mud and the, you know, other stuff they drop. Their primary goal is this, we're going to produce offspring. They're going to, we're going to lay eggs, we're going to set on those eggs till they hatch. We're going to bring worms and feed those little mouths that stick up as they peer over at the owners of this house. We're going we're gonna to protect them. We're going to teach them how to fly. And eventually, we're going to kick them out of the nest so that they can be completely mature. That's their goal in life. They live to reproduce, to bring chicks into maturity. That's the goal for them. And this is God's goal for you. He wants you to be a man or a woman of God who is complete and equipped for every good work. And so this morning, There's some good news, there's some bad news, there's some best news. The good news is this, God loves you. He created you for himself. He designed you perfectly to be in relationship with you. Bad news is is that in sin, you were broken, cut off from God. You've been born as a a rebellious sinner against God. No purpose, no desire to do anything for God. Living for yourself, living in the shame of sin, and yet God still loves you. And that's the best news of the gospel, is that he's made a way for you through Jesus Christ. We've sung about it this morning. We've sung about the power of the blood, the shed blood of Jesus that paid the penalty for all of our sins. And if we will simply say yes to Jesus, faith into him, turn from our sin, we can have a relationship with him. And then once we have that relationship, it is an ongoing, growing vibrant, inexhaustible, holy relationship. Amen? Those of you who know Jesus know what I'm talking about. And even when we mess up as Christians, and we will, there's forgiveness there. And he gives us the Bible as a roadmap to how to live our lives, how to grow in this new relationship we have with Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you this morning, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, today needs to be the day. If you are a follower of Jesus... And you're not reading the Bible. Today is the day to start. 
Whatever it is, today is the day. Your kids are probably like our kids. And if you say, hey, we want you to go do this, and they'll say, let's do it tomorrow. Right now, you're probably hearing that same thing in the back of your head. You don't need to do that today. We'll deal with that tomorrow. We'll deal with that when we get home. We'll deal with that next Sunday. Today's not the right day. No, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to make the decision to follow God, whatever that may be. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who loves us, and you've demonstrated that love by sending the Son of God to the cross to die in our place, to die as a substitute for our sin, to pay that penalty in